Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the I Am a Champion show. I would call this the uh, Michael Jordan episode, maybe, or LeBron James. Which one? Who's the better 23, Jonathan? I'm going with Jordan. I don't care what anybody says, man. Six rings, 6-0 in the, in, the, in the finals. And just when you look at scoring, you look at assists, you look at defensive, you look at MVPs, it's, I'm sorry, if you're going to go by stats, it's that. And then plus, I've just seen Jordan carry things. Like, it's, they're losing takes over the whole game, and they win. i just never seen LeBron really. Hey, Jason, we need to have Isaiah Thomas on with Jonathan <laughs> and go back and forth because Isaiah will give the reasons why LeBron's the greatest. So that'd be well, Isaiah game. has a little bit of an insight that I don't have, but also Isaiah doesn't like the man. I mean, let's be real here. Yeah. I'm not a Jordan. I mean, little I'm, bias. Yeah, he's a little biased, but I believe it or not. He was bringing up some good points the other day, though. He was bringing up some good points, though. To no, he's, he's got solid points, but I'll tell you, I was never – I know I'm going to get lambasted, but I was never a Jordan fan. I wanted Reggie and them to beat him. I wanted the Knicks to beat them. I was, like, all over. When Penny and Shaq beat them in Orlando, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, back to the episode today, though, 23, we actually have a guy that's worked in the NBA, NFL – and he's developed, he's a doctor of psychology, but he's developed what's called athletic intelligence. Now, I've heard of uh, IQ, I've heard of emotional intelligence, I've heard of positive intelligence, but this is a new AI that's not artificial, but athletic. So Scott Goldman's our guest today. He's worked for the Lions, uh, he's worked for the Dolphins, and the NBA's worked for the Wizards, and now he's with the Golden State Warriors, Splash City, right where Jonathan's at. You know, next year, Steph Curry might be the best shooter ever, right, Jonathan? No, I don't think so. I okay. Think okay. I think he's the best we got to get the guest on. This is going to go rambling on with John. Nope. Come on now. Overall best right, shooter ever, Drazen Petrovic, then Reggie, then Ray, then Larry, then Steph. Stay on course, Jason. Okay. Well, we're going to bring Scott on. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll dive into some athletic intelligence instead of who's the best shooter here. So, Scott, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. How are? How's everybody doing? We're doing well. Thank you. Uh you know, Scott, I want to get right into like where did athletic intelligence come from? What was your inspiration behind it? You know, and um, how do we use it to you know determine athletic intelligence? Yeah, good question. Um, so when I was in grad school, I was getting uh, two PhDs for the price of two PhDs. One was in clinical psychology, and the other one was in school psychology. So school psychology is all about learning theory and how to teach and absorb information and so as we were going through intelligence theory, I just started asking myself, like, gosh, I wonder, I wonder if anyone's really doing this in the world of athletics. And so uh, I did a bunch of research and just didn't really find anything that really satisfied or was modern enough. Um, but the real inspiration, and this kind of dates me, was it was about Peyton Manning versus Ryan Leaf. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you remember that debate. Yeah, I do. You know, like Peyton Manning was just this bona fide winner, but people were questioning his arm strength and was he strong enough and big enough and tall enough. And then you had Ryan Leaf, who everybody said was just the prototype physical specimen for being a quarterback. And so I said, well, I wonder how they're going to measure that between the years. So it was the draft time and that was the big debate. And that's when the AIQ came about. It's funny you bring that up because there's three quarterbacks – um, duos that the, that history really looks at. There's Ryan Leaf and Peyton Manning. There's Rick Meyer and Drew Bledsoe. And then recently, Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers. And you can just see, like, the ones who, quote-unquote, had that more mental toughness that or that were more focused on their craft, they, they succeeded. Yeah, I mean, I think what's fascinating, given we're kind of in combined mindset a little bit, is 
I believe the success rate of quarterback selection in the first round is something like 47%. Mm. So for every team that's hit, there's a team that misses. And so I was just kind of curious, what are some of the other measurables? Because intelligence by definition is a genetically stable trait. And it's something that we can, we can objectively assess the same way we measure, you know, size, strength, and speed. So what are ways, Scott, say, like, for example, I'm a college coach and I'm trying to, you're recruiting individuals or like you said, with professional sports, you're trying to, you know, sign free agents or draft somebody. Even in high schools now, it's, it's people moving into areas and almost recruiting it at that end as well. How do you like identify like who, you know, you can see the physical abilities, but how do you identify like the it factor or the intangibles that makes that person a, a special player that's going to help your program, you know, move in the direction you want to go? So when I'm talking to head coaches and GMs, and this is such an oversimplification, I almost have to apologize, but I believe a comprehensive athletic profile consists of four buckets. So the first bucket is physical, right? Size, strength, speed. The second bucket is knowledge. And a lot of people will confuse knowledge and intelligence. But knowledge, another way to say it, and maybe I should change it, is the second bucket is really experience. So, for example, if you're grabbing a point guard from the University of Arizona, a.k.a. point guard you, you know that they're going to come with a style and an understanding of offensive and defensive schemes that might bode really well or translate really well to the NBA. Or same thing as like grabbing a, you know, a linebacker from Alabama or a, or a defensive lineman from Clemson. The third bucket is intelligence, which is the ability to acquire process and apply information. And then the fourth bucket is personality. What's their work ethic like, their love of the game, yeah. their devotion. I think all <laughs> aspects can be done. And so what I've spent the last 20 years doing is focusing on these two buckets, the personality and the intelligence. How do you do it where, you know, Angela Duckworth came out with a book about grit and she's identified like you can have all these characteristics, but the one that she found out that determined whether somebody's going to have success is you have grit. Can you persevere? How, how can coaches know and identify, is it through the experience that this individual has grit? It's been through challenges and it can, you know, go through adversity, persevere and stay the course. You know, so I'm a real fan of Angela Duckworth and her research. And I think grit, I think she's onto something, you know, with that said, I actually tend to migrate a little bit away from it. And the reason why is I think when people got into that mindset, they loved it, especially coaches, because they're like, yeah, I want the guy who's going to get, you know, his knuckles bloody and his all that. And I go, you know, if you really want to kind of assess mental toughness, grit, like it's just old wine in a new bottle sometimes when we start to use that terminology. For me, it comes back to motivation. And I think passion and purpose, and I'll, I'll differentiate those. I think passion is what I am excited about. It's a little bit more selfish. Like this is what I'm passionate about. And purpose is when you're really kind of like serving Uh, something that's bigger than yourself or greater than yourself. So like my passion might be to be a millionaire, but my purpose is to generate uh, generational wealth so that my kids are, are never having to worry about where their next meal comes from. So going back to it, I think, and this is my oversimplification again of mental toughness, right? Uh, If I ask you or ask anyone, like hold up this glass, 
well, at some point, my shoulder is going to start to hurt. My muscles are going to get tired. So we go, okay, who's the most mentally tough, you know, mother effer out there? Well, first we have to make an acknowledgement that not everybody's shoulder muscles are the same. Someone might have surgery. Someone might just be weaker. So already we're not starting from an equal plane. Well, then you got to go to the next level, which is physical discomfort and the ability to tolerate it. Some people are just more naturally robust to feeling discomfort. Then we go with environment or even, so that's more of like a genetic thing. Then we've got a, an environmental element to it, which is I think some people who have grown up with more hardship have discovered ways to tolerate. So if you grew up in a place that's cold and you couldn't afford heat when you were a child, like you're going to have that discomfort. But now comes the final kicker, which is the motivation factor. You pay me five bucks to hold this glass up. I'm like, mm, maybe. But then as my shoulder starts to hurt, I'm like, you know what? Five bucks isn't enough. I'm putting it down. You go, okay, how about if I do 500 bucks? And you're like, all right, I'm in it again. Let's go. And then again, 30 minutes into it, my shoulder's really hurting. I'm like, you know what? Even $500 isn't going to do it. Like, thankfully, I make a pretty good living. I don't need the money. Now, if you were to say, hey, I'm going to put your children's well-being at risk. How long would you hold the cup up? So I think what happens sometimes with the mental toughness grit literature is they don't take into consideration, like, how bad do you really want this? And what we would love, especially in sports, is to find the guy who says, I want to spend 20 hours a day in the gym. I want to run through brick walls to be the next Michael Jordan or to be the new best comparable goat, et cetera. But the reality is, is like, we're all motivated by something. So I, when I do the interviews at the NFL and the NBA combines, a lot of times I'm really kind of trying to assess the, the, the sort of psychological equivalent of like, well, why are you willing, like as a quarterback, why are you willing to get hit? Or as a, as a, as a basketball player, why are you willing to put in the extra time on a task that might be relatively boring, like shooting free throws? And that's all really just about, well, why are you willing to hold the glass up? Well, I mean, I'm to Jimmy's point. I'm not a fan of the whole grit thing. I think it's a, it's a too broad a term and I'm more in your thing. Cause there's an old saying when it comes to understanding that passion and motivation, are you a brawler, a boxer, or are you a fighter? So a brawler has natural ability. They're big, they're strong, they're fast. And it's all emotional. Most of the time, a boxer, I can chain, train Jason to be a technique boxer and handle business with someone who doesn't know what they're doing but he may not be motivated enough to want to physically hurt someone or physically protect himself in every situation. A fighter, regardless of whether a boxer or a brawler is going to, is going to stay because they think that their survival is on the line. Mm -hmm. Something happens, whether that's real or not, it isn't. And to your other point of looking at like measuring intelligence, like the NFL makes you take that thing called the wonder lick, which is a bunch of garbage. It has no bearing on rationality to process information, but it's their little quick way to get it. In. How does this person think? And, I think it's garbage, but I do see people that score really high on that thing, but can't understand a playbook. And I see guys that score really low and get the playbook in seconds. So I think intelligent people have to realize that intelligence and comprehension are not the same thing. They're just not. Yeah. So here's the interesting thing. Fun fact for you. The NFL is not providing the Wonderlick this year. This is the first year where they've eliminated yep. it. And I think there's reason for it. The Wonderlick was based off a theory from 1934. So it's a little bit outdated. 
The other thing is the Wunderlich is also very um, language-based and cultural-based. By comparison, the AIQ, the thing that, that my partner Jim Bowman and I developed, um, it's, it's not language-based and it's not culturally biased. In fact, last year we tested for the NFL, we tested over 450, I think we were up to like 480 players, prospects for the draft. The top, uh, 10 of the top 11 scorers were minorities. And so um, what we found was we could replace the Wonderlick, be somewhat of a better mousetrap, if you will, because what we did was, is we looked at the more modern theory of intelligence, which is the Cattell, Horn, Carroll theory of intelligence, which is what the Woodcock, Johnson, Stanford, Binet, Wexler scales are all based off of. And we could also do something that had, uh, that was not language based or culturally biased. And that goes back to, again, my training. I grew up in New Mexico. And one of the questions on some intelligence tests is what's a schooner? I don't know what a schooner is. I'm from the desert, you know? Exactly. And that used to bother me. So we eliminated stuff like that. Um, just to kind of talk about the AIQ for a sec while we're exploring intelligence theory, because I, I think this part's kind of cool, or it's this is me kind of nerding it up. You know, uh, we first decided how are we going to define sport? That was where we started. We said, you know what? Sports is just this ever-evolving, chaotic puzzle. I think that's why we as fans watch it. And then we said, okay, if sports is an unsolvable puzzle in constantly chaotic, evolving kinds of situations, what are the cognitive abilities that are most needed for that? So we didn't just look at athletes, and we didn't just look at one sport like football or basketball. Like We looked at all sports. But then we also looked at first responders, firefighters, medics, police officers, and we just said, look, like when you kick the door down and you got to use cognitive ability to solve that, same thing as a quarterback who's got to adjust to a blitz coming. Hey, Scott, go, go back to this. You talked about, you know, the internal motivation. You talked about you got to know the passion, right, the purpose. And, and I see that a lot of times in athletics. You'll get like maybe an athlete that looks the part, but they're not really passionate about playing the sport, right? And they're like forced to maybe play it. And they go somewhere and they don't last long. How as a coach, an individual, how can you identify if that person truly has passion and they got a purpose that's aligned with, you know, your organization? Are there questions to be able to ask them to be able to see where they're at? Yeah. So great question, Jim. Um, I, I'm a big believer that all behavior has meaning. So, for example, um, the shirt you're wearing is with some kind of design or strategic element to it. You know, is it laundry day? Is it your lucky shirt? Is it the shirt that, you know, really connects you and gets you ready for this um, interview? There's all behavior has meaning. And so I think what, what I've done with the NFL and the NBA teams is I've developed a series of questions that do not have right or wrong answers, that are not ones that an agent can prepare for or prepare their athlete for, but rather an opportunity for the athlete to kind of express some of their experience and perspective. And, and then the teams hearing this and hearing those answers, what I'm really hoping for is a goodness of fit where, you know, if, if you look at like a player who has joy in his heart and a coach who loves to emphasize the concept of joy, you go, you know what? I think these two are going to get along really well. 
it's funny because you talk about like motivation and, and, you know, a big part of coaching is getting people to kind of push beyond their discomfort. The easiest athletes to work with are the ones that you don't have to do or say anything. They're committed to the mission, right? And those, those are really the, the ones that we should value and praise. Well, it's funny you bring up the road. I'm sorry, Jay Sky, Ben. I was going to say, like, uh, you mentioned matching up a coach's personality with a player's personality. So do you have coaches go through this athletic intelligence so you can have a measurement of, like, hey, these guys would work well together? Are these guys – he may be super talented, but he doesn't drive very well with the coaches. Like, do you also have coaches that take this assessment so it's easier to understand, like, best fits or, you know, maybe conflict things here? Is there a coach's intelligence? So just so we have point of clarity, because I think this is something that happens a lot is in psychology, especially as things start to become kind of poppy or common in language, we lose the meaning. Like, for example, Angela Duckworth's science is really, really well done. What's interesting is with the grit stuff, it's mutated to just really be replacing the word mental toughness. So if you look at Angela Duckworth's science, you're like, hey, this is good work. When you start using the word grit in sort of common language, we lose that. So going and bringing it back, a point of clarity is intelligence is our ability to acquire, process, and apply information. And going back to those four buckets, because we kind of keep going back between these two. Intelligence is like how they see the field, how they make decisions in lifetime, knowing where they are in relation to space or finding an efficient route. So think like a linebacker who has to take a pursuit angle or a running back who has to decide whether to hit the A gap or the B gap. The personality stuff is more me as a sports psychologist, which is about kind of going, okay, why is, why is a quarterback willing to get hit? Like that's a question I like to ask a lot. Why are you willing to get hit? What do you want to get hit for? That kind of stuff. So when it goes to the coaches, the cognitive abilities, the intelligence that you need to be a successful coach have a lot more to do with like logic reasoning and some other aspects than it does lifetime decision-making. So with the AIQ, we're measuring a lot more of how to help absorb information during the installs of the week or practices. And then also what can they do, you know, so like just use a baseball metaphor um, or a baseball example. Let's say you're having at bat in the first inning and it's an unsuccessful at bat. Then in the third inning, you go up against the same pitcher. What are some of the things that you are digesting and trying to absorb so that you can have a more successful at bat? So for example, like when a, when a pitcher flares his glove, that oftentimes is an indicator of them adjusting a grip. So your ability to note that minute detail of a glove flare, that's a cognitive ability. So bringing it back to coaches and what do coaches need? I, I think, I think coaches have to be incredibly intelligent, right? They have to be really good problem solvers and tacticians, but they also have to be wonderful therapists in their own right. They do have to connect with players and have a real meaningful way of inspiring and promoting behavior. Well, it's funny you bring this up. Um, if you ever watch a video, for you young kids watching this, it's a VHS tape, you stick it in a video recorder, you play it. It's like you guys stream now and we all do too as well. Um, but, there's a, there's a video called um, NFL's 100 Greatest Tackles. The, there's a motivational part in, in the intro by um, Dr. Gilmore. And Dr. Gilmore is related to my dad, their cousins. And he does this whole motivational thing about it and stuff. And one of the phrases that he loved and used to say all the time was like, you know, 
one who has a why to live for will overcome anyhow. And you get that from Friedrich Nietzsche and stuff. And he always talked, he used to coach with Buddy Ryan when Buddy was with the Arizona Cardinals. And Buddy said, there's four types of guys. There's this guy that, yeah, I want to play the game. I love it. It's fun. It's what I do. And the second one is like, I want to be that first guy, but I'm willing to do whatever it takes to be the best I can be. Then there's that third guy that, yeah, I'm one and two, but I also want to do whatever it takes to stop you. And then there's that rare bird, that rare motivational person, that how you can get to that guy where I want to do one through three and I don't care what happens to myself or me. Like, I don't think about self-preservation when I'm doing it. That guy's are the Ronnie Lots, the scary guys. The guys will stand there like Joe Montana, get the crap knocked out and go right back up and get up, get up. I'm, I know my shoulder's out. Forget it. I'm throwing the ball anyway. You know? Yeah. How do you get to that guy or know that that guy's? I believe you can't know until it happens. But if there's a, I'd love to hear is there a way you can look at that and see things like, how do I know who that guy is? Yeah. So I find anecdotally, one of the trends that I looked at when I was in the NFL was second contract guys. You know, second contracts where you get pension, second contracts also where you get paid. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting, right? Because some guys, their performance would trend up because some of the anxiety of their financial burden was gone. So they were free to just go out there and dominate. And other guys, their performance trended down, right? They're like, hey, I already got paid. I'm good. And so I think that is the quest. So while we're talking about assessing personality, here's my argument. If we can assess personality, there's way more important things that we should be doing than sports. We could end wars, terrorism, sexual assaults, uh, gun violence, like if we could identify who's going to be what personality wise, we could do a lot of good. I think the other thing about personality to note is that it's not static or stable. When you get married, when you have a major life changing event, like getting married, having kids, maybe signing your first multi-million dollar contract, these things can change you. So when it comes to like, how do we measure it? A lot of those self-report measures, and that's another thing I would emphasize is their self-report. So you can lie like, hey, I think I'm a really brave dude. Meanwhile, you're not because you know that they're looking for brave dudes. So you go, I'm a brave dude. The other thing is you could lack self-awareness. You can go, yeah, I think of myself as a brave dude. So I'm answering it honestly. But then when the building's on fire, I'm knocking over old ladies and pushing babies out of the way to get out of the building first. So, you know, I think one of the issues about personality and trying to understand it is it's incredibly complicated. It fluctuates all the time based off of life events. And we have to rely on the person kind of telling us who they are. That's why rather than using a personality measure, what I do is I've developed these questions that really just allow an individual to kind of explore himself and some of his thoughts and ideas with the team. So that way at the end of it, we go, God, we really like this guy. We like the way he thinks. We like the way we like what he believes in because we believe in the same thing, at least for right now. And who knows when that or how that will change over time. Hey, Scott, I, I think like understand the personality of your player is important, but I think organizations, administrators need to do this for the coaches are hiring. Because yeah. I'm telling you, coaches got to become better. Like we talk about these coaches, especially the college level, high school level, even pro, you're mentoring, you're teaching, right? These individuals become successful in the sport. And we got coaches that are emotionally acting like 
kind of idiots per se, animalistic at times. And we talked about like the Juwan Howard coach guard incident, throwing a punch, almost like a brawl starts out. Danny Hurley the other day, going crazy on the sidelines, people trying to hold him back, getting the fans going crazy against officials getting kicked out. What are we teaching these kids? Like, I think we need to become better. So my question for you is, how do we identify as administrators, like coaches with the personalities? And then also, what can coaches do? What do you do with coaches to help them become more emotionally stable, to lead by example, to help these kids succeed in and out of sports? So I've got kind of a unique niche, and it wasn't something I ever designed from a professional career path or anything, but I think it's because of that school psych background and the clinical background. And so the AIQ, we would often talk about players and how they problem solved out on the field. And then a coach would say, hey, well, what makes them such an a-hole or something like that? And then it's like, okay, now all of a sudden we're kicking into the psychology thing. And because I forged a lot of what I would call meaningful relationships with head coaches, I have a tendency to be very compassionate. One thing that I have discovered with every new head coach I've ever worked with, where it's their first time being a head coach, at some point in our conversations, they go, you know, I know X's and O's. I didn't realize that I had to manage people. Yeah. And I think in a level of compassion for head coaches, and I'll get to your question, I promise, but in a level of compassion for head coaches is staffs have expanded beyond what it was 20 years ago. I know some NBA teams that have more staff members uh, and support staff than they actually have players on their roster. And so I think what's happening is these brilliant-minded coaches who get the X's and O's of their sport are now being elevated to where they're no longer really getting a chance to do their thing, which is be really brilliant-minded tacticians. Now they're just managers, they're CEOs. So when I'm working with a new coach, one of the questions I ask is like, are you going to like, like again in the NFL, it's like, are you going to take the side of a ball? Like, are you going to just be the offensive coach or the defensive coach? Or are you going to be kind of a leader of, of, of people? Cause I'm not so sure in today's game, both NBA and NFL, I'm not so sure in today's game at the professional level, you can do both because everybody wants just five minutes of your time. And before you know it, those five minutes add up. And that's when the coach is now finishing his homework to get ready for installs at four o'clock in the morning. And then they get emotionally deregulated because of how sleep deprived they are. And then they're not making good decisions. And then things like what you just described, those two examples. And I'm going like, this is a hard thing. So going back to your question is how can we help administrators? I think one thing that's interesting is, an administrator will hear an answer like, oh, man, I would run over my grandmother for a national championship. And the administrator's like, yes, that's the guy we want. Then when he does something that's outrageous, that's nowhere near running over a grandmother, but it's something that's kind of equal, you know, a little bit outrageous. And they go, oh, my God, this guy's a monster. And meanwhile, the head coach going, dude, I told you I would run over my grandmother. <laughs> this other thing that I did is nothing compared to that. Like, this is what you were reinforcing. So, you know, I think it goes back to this concept of what do we want our organization to be? And, and Jim, what I love about your perspective is, you know, the fish rots from the head first. I've come to appreciate the pro space. Ownership matters. And at the college space, athletic directors matter. And where they put their time and attention, what they reinforce 
with their hirings and firings speaks volumes about how to go about being successful. Well, it's funny you mentioned about leadership and ownership and how it, like, I, I, Jimmy has used that whole fish rod from the head thing. I, didn't, I never studied fish, but whatever. So I learned <laughs> a lot from Jimmy. But it's uh, not to pick on any specific organization, but when you see um, an older school regime, and I could take personally the Bengals, when he he's one of Paul Brown's descendants, he's the family's on the team forever. They left the Browns to make the Bengals and whatever. But when his daughter and the younger generation started taking over the administration, that's when they started being successful because they were, they, they were looking at how players are today and what, what motivates them, all that kind of stuff. And I've also seen in every level of sport, when you have quality control coaches and assistants that manage like the operational stuff, making playbooks, getting things organized, whether you can focus on the bigger picture, look at those programs and look at the statistics on their winning and on stress and on consistency. I mean, that's what I think administrators need to realize is, yeah, I hired Jimmy and he's ready to run over his grandmother, but I need to keep people around Jimmy in a staff position that can help him have focus on that so he doesn't have to run over his grandmother. Well, and that's just it. Like, that's how it trickles down, right? Because I think when ownership or that athletic director has a value-based decision of the head coach they hire, well, then that head coach then hires a support staff and that all trickles down. You know, like right now, you, you mentioned my day job with the Golden State Warriors. Like the, the Lakeham family, there, you know, there's Joe, there's Kent, there's Kirk. They are three amazing individuals. And the way that they go about conducting their business and their investment in the well-being of their organization, I mean, it, I don't think it's luck the success that they're having in Golden State. Like, I, I am so honored and blessed to be a part of what they're doing there. And, and it's and it starts with those three individuals for sure. And then you've got, you know, you've got Bob Myers as the president, brilliant mind, unbelievable, and, and also Coach Kerr. I mean, there's just something special. And it's not in the water. It's in it's in the people. Well, going back to what you said, Scott, it starts with administrative or the owners or whoever. Here's our vision. Here's what we want our culture to be about. And then you're hiring those people that fit that, right? You're not just hiring somebody to come in and expecting them. Like you said, you want to win at all costs. They're not doing, you know, they do certain things and win at all costs. And now you're not happy. And who takes the blame? The coach. When you're responsible at the beginning for how you begin the process of that. But I do want to get into this. You help individuals with stress, anxiety, depression, things like that. And you know what I know? There's a lot of coaches, athletes that struggle with anxiety. They're struggling with the stress. You mentioned the stress like coaches. They're 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 going to bed at four o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. They're waking up at six, right? And there's pressure within what they're doing. How do you help like coaches and athletes deal with the pressure, the anxiety, to be able to handle themselves in certain ways so they can perform at the level that they're capable of performing at? So there was a, a famous study by Albert Bandura, the famous psychologist, and he hypothesized that there's up to 25 incompatible responses to anxiety. So the most common one is relaxation, which is, you know, like you can't, you can't flex and relax a muscle at the same time. So you can turn one off by turning the other one on kind of thing. But what was interesting was Bandura discovered you can do things like hunger. So for example, I might be anxious about snakes, but if there was a snake pit and there was a beautiful looking pizza and I haven't eaten in two days, I'm starving, I'll overcome my fear of snakes to go after the pizza. 
same thing with like um, sexual desire. Like and, and we can replace pizza with a, an attractive human being to you and you might overcome your fear of snakes to be with that attractive person. So I mentioned that because I don't think there's a specific recipe that's universal. Hey, you're anxious about this. Just take this and you'll be fine. Or just go through this protocol. You'll be fine. I think what it really is, is it's about understanding the human being, understanding what their motivation and driver is, and then working with them to manage that anxiety and pressure and stress. Because you're right. These jobs are stress filled. And, and um, it is part of the job description. Like you, you can't avoid that. So how you manage it, I think, is really important, especially for longevity. So real quick, Scott, I wanted to ask you something. Like, I've been around guys that are uber competitive, like to a point where it's like, I hate to say this to, to young kids out there. You see the LeBrons out there and the Stephs, and you see the Jordans out there and the, and the, and the Larry Birds. But people don't realize people that are that competitive. When they're off the court, off the field, they can be jerks. Like, I mean, like they are linearly focused. How, where does athletic intelligence um, contribute to or does it to that competitiveness, that person that's like, I don't care if we're playing tiddlywings or if my grandma said, hey, I could pick up more leaves than you. They want to destroy that person. I mean, I'm not, I'm competitive, but I've never been that competitive. Where it, no matter what, I got to crush Jimmy and Jason for no other, I can't handle no, losing to them. Sure. So um, one of the things is the research shows intelligence is one of the greater predictors of success. So if you think about it, intelligence can help you discard a calcified way of doing something. Hey, this isn't working. We got to go in a different direction. It's great. And it's really associated with things like improvisation and creativity, et cetera. So if you just think about the idea of achievement over com competition, intelligence becomes a wonderful asset to it. But when you talk about the whole kind of like desire and jerk-like behavior, that falls under that personality category. And, 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 you know, again, this might be the psychologist to me, but I'm a big believer that no one's a, a villain of their own story. So, you know, I don't know Michael Jordan personally. And, and normally... Um, I don't talk about someone if I don't know them personally. And if I do know them, I don't talk about them because my relationship as a psychologist is not to. But what I have found is with those uber competitors, I find a lot of times it tend to be tortured souls. Like they're not pursuing joy or passion as much as they are just seeking relief. And so I find sometimes for them, that fire in their belly comes from a source of healing, of, of needing to be healed. Um, and, and what's interesting is there are times where I've worked with athletes directly where I've said, you know, if we kind of go down this path, it might decrease your competitiveness or your desire, which could impact your performance. And we process whether or not we want to go down that path or not. And some have chosen yes, and some have said, no, I'd rather keep my competitiveness intact. Well, and, and to your point, Scott, is there a way where, you know, you could be that ultra competitor for 60 minutes, 48 minutes, whatever it is, in practice, you name it, but then have the cognitive ability like, okay, I'm aware now I'm, I'm in public or I'm, I'm with my family, like to turn on that compassion muscle, right? Like is there, is there a way to train of like, you know, getting ready to go? And then also turning it off and, and just being a, you know, uh, 
like like a non-competitive person, just being a, a person of compassion and, and uh, high empathy? So I say yes with a but and no with an if. And it's a really, honestly, it's a very sophisticated question, Jason. Mm -hmm. I love it. My perspective is this. If you look at certain professions, like let's just take police officers, for example. Police officers, the nature of their job is adversarial because they don't know who's an ally and who's an enemy on the other side of the door. That kind of constant job-like state where you don't know who's an ally and who's an enemy, I think is often reinforced and reinforceable. So I think it's the same thing like with, with a lawyer. Lawyers love to engage in, in the debate, right? So when they're in a, a more social environment, I think sometimes those dominant, well-rehearsed behavioral and human interaction type elements, I think they can come out. So I get this asked a lot because I'm a psychologist. I go to a cocktail party. I tell people I'm a psychologist. What's the thing that comes out? Well, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? <laughs> you know, and I, and I used to joke about it. I'd say, well, you know, if a plumber came in, would you be asking him if he was looking underneath your sink to see what the plumbing looks like? But there is also this element like you can't escape your training. You can't escape what you do. Yeah. However, and this, so that's the yes, but now comes the, the no. I also think... If you ask a coach or a player to think of themselves in a different role, like as a father or a son, I think you can see that. So again, the police officer, the lawyer, the, the head coach, the basketball player, the football player, whatever role, you put them in a new role, fatherhood. And I think they, they will come out with a very different response. In fact, like going back to those personality inventories, which I'm, again, I'm not a fan of, You'll see that if someone takes the profile and they say, I want you to think of yourself as a, as a, as a soccer player. Now take the profile. And I want you to think of yourself as a father. They'll come out with two totally different profiles. And so to piggyback off of that, don't you think we should be, you know, a lot of athletes identify as an athlete. And so therefore their identity takes them around where if they saw their, them as an athlete, as a role to play, like on a team or you name it, Hey, I'm the role of a father here. I'm the role of a dad. I'm the role of a player and not get so ingrained in their identity as a player. Then maybe would that be a, a possible way to maybe shift some of these like ultra competitive, like maybe build strong relationships outside of the sport to see them as a role and not as an identity. Yeah. And it becomes a really interesting theoretical debate because you go, all right, if we um, alter that mindset or that self-perception, does that also make somebody less likely to put two more hours into practice? Could it decrease? So, you know, like one of the things that I'm kind of digesting right now with a couple of coaches that I'm working with is the concept of mastery. I think there's something kind of neat about mastery, but what's interesting is those that have actually mastered their craft, how often are they going through a period of discomfort I don't want to use the word torture because I, I don't want to be flippant with that, but how often are they going through a phase of discomfort where they're like, whether it's painting or, or um, carving or something where they're just like, man, I just can't get it. I can't get it. I can't get it. And then it clicks. Like you'll see this with some athletes um, who are constantly putting themselves in challenging situations as they're trying to get themselves into a mastery kind of 
level or state. So that's one of the concepts that I'm kind of playing with right now in, in that regard. It's funny you bring that up. Um, there's a movie that I really like. It's um, Tom Cruise was in it, which I wasn't a fan of him getting the role, but he did a good job. Is The Last Samurai. When he talks about the village, he says, I've never seen this where people get up in the morning and the whole day is spent in perfecting their craft. Or the, I'm missing the quote up, but it was something like that where they relentlessly pursue doing what they do every day, perfect or, and better every time. I mean, I know athletes that are like that. They get up in the morning and their whole world is from 4.30 till the time they eat dinner is about perfecting their craft. To so Jason's point, I think some of the things that leads to that is when there's no balance. Mm -hmm. You gotta find a way to still be that competitive high level person and find balance. And I've been there where you were focused on all that stuff and then you realize, dude, I haven't seen my son in a while or I haven't talked to my kids or when's the last time I was actually on a date with somebody and had a human interaction that wasn't about this world. So when you talk about athletic intelligence, what do you think about people being aware of that and like, like realizing it? Because it took me a long time to realize it. Other people had to tell me and show me. I didn't figure it out on my own. Yeah. So, I mean, again, athletic intelligence is really about the ability to scan the field. It's really, again, like I would almost encourage you to think of athletic intelligence almost like we're talking about height. And if the nature of the task is to get something off the top shelf, well, if I'm tall, I have an easier time getting it. If I'm intelligent, I have to come up with a crafty way of navigating or offsetting my, my height. But to your point, I think that it's really more of an emotional description, I think, is what you're talking about. And compassionately, I've worked with some head coaches that have confessed with me they don't know what grade their children are in. Yeah. I've worked with some coaches that say right before the season starts, they have a kind of like going away weekend with their spouse and with their children. And they'll say, look, I'll see you when the season ends. And then sure enough, like two thirds, three fourths of the way through the season, they'll confide in me. Like I'm really missing my kids right now. I'm really missing my wife. And I'll be like, Hey, you're the head coach. Like you want to cancel practice. You can cancel. And then no, I can't do it. I'm, I don't want to let all these people down. And so there is um, an interesting element right now in sports where we have lost some balance. Hey, Scott, getting into that, we talked about before with, you know, they, you mentioned these coaches, they're maybe not balanced with their life and they got stress and anxiety and the pressure. But, you know, you're dealing with athletes that are dealing with, you know, that struggle with that as well. And you hear a lot of coaches say it's not just X and O's anymore. You mentioned it's like now I got to be like a counselor. I got to be a sports psychologist. What are things you, should, you suggest coach in general to do to, get in conversations, ask questions of their athletes, their coaching staff, like how are they doing? Not just in the sport, but out of the sport to be able to find that out and be able to help them if they're struggling. So I think one universal guiding principle, I think human beings fundamentally just want to be heard. So when I talk to coaches who go, I don't know what to do, or this player just came in my office, I didn't know what to say. I go, I don't think you have to say anything. I think you just want to make sure that they felt heard. Even if you disagree with them, as long as they felt heard, they're okay with the disagreement because they go, well, at least, at least he heard my side of the argument. When you look at leadership to um, follower relationship dynamics, so whether it's coach, player, or CEO and employee, um, a big part of that relationship is built off of trust 
that stems from three pillars. One is authenticity. Are you being true to yourself? So in that moment, are you trying to fake like you care about the player? Like, you know, one of one of the bugaboos that I try to gear coaches away from is when they start to use family terminology, like, oh man, yes. I love you. You're like a son to me. Like, you know what? Like, you don't hire and fire family. You don't train family. So I know that you're trying to prove to them that you care, but I think when you're authentic in your perceptions, you don't have to be overt in your language. I think a person who feels cared about, you don't have to say, hey, man, I care about you. They already know. So I think authenticity is the first one. Second one is knowledge. Do you have the answers to the test? Because I think people will trust you if they think you know. So, hey, look, I'm going to call a play. I'm going to call a pass play. Like, let's go with the NFL for a sec. I'm going to call a pass play that's going to have your blind side unprotected. Because if they bring the blitz, if they bring a quarterback blitz or a linebacker blitz, you're going to have to pick that up as a quarterback, which means you're likely to get hit and hit hard. But if you're willing to do this, we could have an explosive 30-yard play. And if the player says, the quarterback says, you know what, I, I trust your knowledge that when you call that play, it's the right play, then I'm willing to get hit, right? So it's authenticity, knowledge, and then the last one is empathy. Well, Jonathan, Jonathan, real quick, I know you want to jump in. I got something around Scott when he said, I, well, pet peeve of mine is when people sit there and they put their hands in huddles and they're like, family, yeah. like family, right? Everybody's like talking about family. Like you see youth organization, everybody like family. Are you really a family and you're getting ready to cut that kid in a couple months? They're not going to make a team. I mean, that, that's the stuff like some of the people are mentioning, like family. Are you really a family? Why are you using that? Well, no, I'm the same place with you, Jimmy, on that. Um, I think all due respect, um, Scott, like, to Jimmy, I wanted to be heard to, to back to your point. But um, but when you use the family thing, I think the only time that that I've ever seen it work at, a, at a, like a, a level that was that was authentic, to use your word, was when they showed that crap off the field and off the court. Like during practice, during the during the, during the, the actual sport itself, I didn't want to hear that nonsense either. I thought that stuff was garbage. It used to irritate the crap out of me. You didn't grow up with me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know anything about me. So why are you saying that? But the coach that would come by the house or – you know, hey, dude, I know you're still in rehab, man. What are you doing? Why don't you come over for a house for a barbecue? Let's talk a little bit and see where you are. Hey, we may not be keeping you next year, but I want to call coach here, call coach here to make sure you got an opportunity and stuff. And here's a physician I want you to go see to um, her work. That's the guy that I still talk to and we still think we're there at my son's celebration of life or at my daughter's graduation. That's family. So, I, I mean, I, I agree with both of you. I hated when they used it. But the only time I think it works for me or I feel and I know a lot of guys that feel the same way. And it was authentic is when it was off the court or off the field. So sometimes I'll ask coaches this question is I'll say, how many weddings have you been to? I think that's an indicator, right? Yeah. Because what you're talking about, Jonathan, in my opinion, is investment. When, when the coach is invested in the player holistically, not just what the player can do for them. Like that's a transactional relationship. When the play, when the coach and, the, and, I, and I'm okay with transactional relationships as long as they're very clearly identified so that yeah. there's no misperception. You do this for me. I'll do this for you as a transactional relationship. No problem. Coach says you block this guy and I'll get you paid on. I'll get you paid at the next contract. Okay. But what you're talking about, Jonathan is, is a lot in my opinion is, is a lot about investment. 
which is to say, and this isn't a family term, this is just a humanistic term of, I care about you. I genuinely care about you. And I think you don't have to say that. The player will already know it because of all the things you just described. Hey, Scott, something I want to dive into. I know Jonathan would love to talk about this, but Steph Curry, um, great shooter. This year he kind of, they talked about, went through a little bit of a slump, right? Struggled a little bit. And you see a lot of kids struggling with confidence. What what are ways like with a Steph Curry going through that period or athletes you work with that have achieved greatness, but they're struggling at a period of time? What do you do to instill that confidence back in them? Before you answer, Scott, I want the people watching this show to hear me. I do not think that Steph Curry is a bad player. I think he's a great player. He's a potential Hall of Famer. He, I, he's our hometown team. Du Bois is a baller. I just do not think he's the best overall shooter in NBA history. Best <laughs> three-point shooter percentage-wise. And number-wise, yes, but the best overall shooter in the NBA, no. There are people with higher percentage rates when they get the ball. There are people that have been, that are more consistent. There are people that have been have, have better mid-range jumpers and have been consistent through their career. Okay, now you can answer okay. James. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> I just would like to say that I really respect Jonathan's opinion to be wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my dissertation was on confidence and confidence induction. And so I think to really kind of define confidence, it's not just a psychological state. It's also a physiological state. It's a state of being. So I think there's a lot of ways to tap into when someone's had their moments of doubt or pain. And, and here's the thing, again, going back to the quest of mastery, mastery can mutate into a concept of perfection and there's no human being on this planet that's perfect, as Jonathan just witnessed with uh, with his perception about basketball prowess. So nobody's perfect. So what we're what we're trying to do is we're always trying to push that threshold of getting better, getting better, getting better. And the only way to do that is through some level of discomfort and struggles. There are the setbacks. So when it comes to the confidence. What I like to highlight is it's not just a psychological state. It's also a physiological state. So sometimes I'll just simply ask a player to go back to a physiological feeling state. And I keep emphasizing physiology because it's not like, hey, I just want you to feel confident. What I'm saying is tell me what confidence feels like to you. Like, what do your muscles feel like? What does your heart feel like? What is your teeth? Because, you know, sometimes when people are anxious, they might be gritting their teeth. So it's like, Tell me about the physiology of when things feel good. Now, can you induce that? Can you kind of even just put yourself in a state of physiology that turns off that anxiety physiology? Now, is that stuff you get them into, like affirming stuff to themselves? Because, you know, we can be our worst inner critic. Is it stuff that you have them like visualizing themselves doing certain things to get themselves feeling and being in those states? Yeah. I mean, like that stuff. So, Again, this is me just being like super nerd. Um, the stimuli can be external or internal, right? So we can have doubts from an external stimulus, like someone tells us we suck, or we can have it from an internal state, like I tell myself I suck. And what I try to migrate people away from is less about this kind of like uh, verbal language and more of just like a feeling state, like, you know, if you could ask or interview a fish, 
which I've never tried to do. But if you were to ask or try to interview a fish and you said, hey, I want you to just describe the sensation of water, <clears throat> excuse me, water. They would look at you and be like, what are you talking about? And I think confidence and certain types of like flow states, like they're indescribable for a reason because the parts of the brain that are most associated with optimal performance are not part of the brains that are most associated with self-awareness. So sometimes it's, it's like entering or leaving a room. Really, if you think about it, it's the same activity. You're going through a process, right? Are we leaving the room or are we entering a new room? Are we migrating away from something or towards something? It gets very philosophical. And so when I dip into the confidence stuff, what I try to do is I try to migrate away from all the self-talk and the forced visualization. And I'm going, if you were to just put it away and just think about what it feels like to shoot a perfect jumper. Just tell me what it feels like. And they'll go, I don't know, man. It's hard to describe because, again, it's like asking a fish to describe water. So you go, great. Don't use language. Just see if you can sit there for a moment and feel that, physiologically feel that. And I found that to breed some pretty good success. Yeah, I know we're getting ready to wrap up, but I got one more question in regards to Clay Thompson. You look at Clay, like, tears towards ACL, coming back, gets re-injured, out for a couple of years. What do you do with athletes like that that have these injuries and they're wanting to play and they're struggling to get back to 100% to be on the court? How do you help them through that process? So, again, it kind of varies individual by individual, you know, but one element that I have found to be somewhat common is the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge is once you know something, you can't unknow it. So the example I give to people is like the first time you've kissed someone you you really cared about, you had all these butterflies and all that. Once you've had that first kiss, you can never go back to a first kiss with that person. Similarly, I think pre-injury, most athletes will, they won't talk about it because they're like, yeah, it just, I don't believe it. It won't happen to me or it just, you know, so if they feel a sensation, like something pops, they're just like, eh, that's just, you know, you know, just a normal kind of functioning. Post-injury, especially ones that are require a prolonged rehabilitation, like an ACL, those physiological sensations, those cues, that pop no longer is harmless. It's, oh, did I just redo this again? Yeah. So right. what's hard in the curse of knowledge is to get people to be fearless like they were before. And it's really hard whether you've been in a car accident, you've fallen off a cliff and survived. Like anytime you've had some kind of injury, your brain will hardwire based off of self-preservation. Your brain hardwires. That's why the game two for flinching works so well, right? It's like once you've been punched, you're going to wince the next time a fist is coming towards you. So, So I think what's hard and where I do the work with people with significant injury is trying to get them not to go back to being fearless, but to accept this new norm and to recalibrate their radar that not every pop is an injury. It's just a false sensation. Well, uh, Scott, you know, where can people learn more uh, about your work and, and follow you on your, uh, your website or you have, uh, you know, social media, Uh, where can they learn more about you? Yeah. So I'll be honest as a psychologist, 
it's very easy to know which way the cameras are pointed and I've always chosen to stay behind it. So I don't have a website or anything like that. Um, however, with the AIQ, which, you know, we kind of dabbled into a little bit in, uh, in intelligence in intelligence application for talent assessment, everything else that you can go to the website, athleticintel.com. And, uh, and I think there's some, there's some, there's some real merit to the AIQ. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but yeah. There's some real merit to using the AIQ to help with um, not just talent identification, but talent development. And final question before we uh, let you go today. In your opinion, what does it mean to be a champion, not only in sports, but in life as well? Wow, that's a meaty question. (laughs) I think to be a champion – is to have a moment of reflection and say, I'm proud of what I just did. There you go. It's a simple but profound answer. So, uh, well, Scott, thanks again, man. Hey, Jason, Scott, talking about like self-reflecting, right? More Mm -hmm. of self-reflection in doing that. Self-awareness. Yeah, I think we all are, right? Yeah, Yeah. every day, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Scott, man, again, thanks for joining us today. It was a very uh, insightful uh, interview and uh, appreciate all your, uh, all your time today. Um, enjoy the rest of your Friday. It's Friday. Hey, it's Friday guys. Enjoy the rest of your Friday and your weekend. Uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much. This was a treat. Take care. Thank you. Right. Good to meet you, Scott. You too. Well guys, I don't know about athletic intelligence, but I feel like I got a lot more intelligent as a person today to having Scott on the show. Well, I mean, I don't know if we got more intelligent. We think we're pretty bright guys, but I do like the way he approached things because he broke things down like the four buckets he broke down. And I liked how he always tied it to something that was just not just the field or the court, but how he could do it off, how that athletic intelligence also applied off the field and off the court. And I love the way Jimmy tied it into um, the coaches and you brought it home with, do you think that this could help with coaching compatibility with the type of players would be good for your program? I think that's, there's some practical use to this as well as some personal use. And I thought that was impressive. I think Jonathan, by the way, talking about intelligence, I think after the Steph Curry take, I don't think Scott thinks you're very intelligent, but that's okay. We don't need to go there. But I do, want, I do want to say this, what Scott mentioned, and it goes back to balance, sleep deprived. Yes. Like, like you talked about with coaches, you know, and, and coaches are mentoring individuals within the programs or managing stuff. So I think it goes to how do you, like we talk about so much time management, it's like task management. How do you manage your tasks? to be able to maximize your days and still take care of yourself and self-care because you're not taking care of yourself. How can you take care of others? Right. And having that emotional intelligence. So there's a lot that he gave out there, but that's something that I thought I really, you know, picked up on there. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the things I mentioned in the, in the conversation was I think balance is important. You know, you get so wrapped up in being so competitive and so driven, you forget the real world and sometimes forget who you are. But yeah, I would go with you, Jamie. I think if we had to pick one word for everything, it'd be balance. Hey, and that's balance. not balance I'm balancing right now. <laughs> that, that's, that's just creepy. I'm just saying, dude, just Google like sh- all time NBA shooting percentage. Oh, no, we don't need to go. Don't go to Jay's. Yeah, yeah. This, no this thing's going nowhere. It's all right. <laughs> well, guys, hey, enjoy your Friday. Another great I Am A Champion show and uh, looking forward to March and what that's going to bring on how we can become champions in life. So have a good one, fellas. Have a good weekend, fellas. Be good.